Welcome to Great Loop Radio, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. This is Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA. Today we're doing something a little bit different with our podcast, so before we start, I want to take a moment to recognize and thank our Admiral sponsors who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Beneteau, Curtis Stokes & Associates, Dog River Marina, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage all the loopers out there to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. And with that out of the way, recently I was asked to be on another podcast, and Mark Philpot, who is a member, interviewed me for that. He is with the Global Travel Channel, and he is actually working on a documentary about the Great Loop. He's in Australia, and as part of that process, he had me as a guest on his podcast, and I thought our listeners might be interested in hearing the results of that as well. So I'm going to play a message from one of our sponsors, which we usually do towards the middle, but since we're rebroadcasting a different podcast, it makes more sense to do it at the beginning and from there we will start the audio from Mark Philpott's podcast so listen and enjoy. AGLCA Admiral Sponsored Dog River Marina is located at the mouth of the Tentom Waterway in Mobile, Alabama only 22 miles from the Gulf of Mexico. The marina encompasses 95 slips 80 of which are sheltered. They offer a ship store, courtesy car, rental cars, 24-hour guard service and shore power. The complex's full-service repair facility is staffed with highly trained personnel to handle everything from simple repairs to complex overhauls. For more information, visit www.dogriver.com. So, hello everyone. Welcome to the Global Travel Channel podcast series. My name's Mark Philpot, and today I've got a very exciting guest with us all the way from the United States of America, and her name is Kim Russo. Kim, good morning over there. Well, good evening to you over there, Mark. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today, Kim. And um, I would just like to start off by letting our audience know a little bit about yourself and in particular, what organization you're representing today. Sure. Well, as you said, my name is Kim Russo. I'm the director of America's Great Loop Cruisers Association, otherwise known as AGLCA. Um, and in that role, gosh, I guess I've been the director now for about three or four years, but I've been doing uh, certain functions for AGLCA for more like 10 or 12 now. Um, so it's a, a great group of people, loopers, as we'll start to discuss, I think, as we move through this podcast today. Sure. So, Kim, what actually got you into the uh, Looping Association there? That's uh, such a good question. Um, my parents, actually, were early members of the association, and I thought my dad was crazy. I did not understand this whole <laughs> Great Loop concept, yeah. um, and you know, I just kept thinking, he take mom and go for a year on their boat and leave the grandchildren, and what is he talking about? And uh, back about 10 or so years ago, the founders of the organization it had grown beyond what they really wanted to manage, and they approached my parents about taking it over, which they did. And as part of that transition process, the founders came to our office and walked us through the Great Loop route using some of the pictures that they had taken. Right. And I guess I'm a visual person, but at that point, I went, I get this now. What yeah. a great adventure. Look at all these things that you can see. So, um, as I said, my parents took it over and were running it. So I was kind of helping with the sponsorship program. And about three or so years ago, 
when they were ready to really retire is when it became my full-time thing. Fantastic. Now, we've we've got lots of people around the world listening to the podcast today who don't know what the Great Loop is. So could you take a few minutes and just explain it to us? Sure. And uh, it's a little bit more challenging when we just have the audio here. So if you have a uh, Google Maps or something that you can bring up and kind of follow this along. Um, but essentially, it's a circumnavigation of the eastern part of the U.S. and parts of Canada. Um, so loopers, as they're called take their boat and they head on this journey. It's about 6,000 miles. You can start anywhere on the route, but roughly it follows the east coast of the United States. Uh, mostly, in, most loopers will take an inland route. So they're, they're taking what we call the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway uh-huh. uh, rather than being out in the ocean. So it's following the, the waterway up, protected a little bit by some barrier islands. So mm. that runs from Florida to the Chesapeake Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the route continues through the Chesapeake Bay, kind of uh, in, through New Jersey and into New York City. Uh, definitely a highlight for many people. Sure. Follows the Hudson River northward, which leads to uh, the New York State Canal System, taking you into the Great Lakes. Uh-huh. Loopers will go, uh, if they're staying in the U.S., they'll go through um, Lake Ontario, Lake Erie, and then around Michigan. But most will go through Canada. Um, so they'll take on Lake Ontario across into Canada, mm-hmm. um, use the Canadian Canal System there, and come out in Lake Huron. Mm-hmm. Uh, take Lake Huron to Lake Michigan, south all the way through Lake Michigan, and then take the Inland River System to the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Most will not take the Mississippi River all the way down to New Orleans at the Gulf of Mexico. Most will take uh, what's known as the Ten Tom Route, which puts them into the Tennessee River and the Tom Bigby Waterway and come out through Mobile, right. um, which is uh, surprising to a lot of people, but most won't do do the, the Mississippi River all the way to New Orleans. Yeah, and why is that, Kim? Why, why don't people go down the Mississippi? The lower part of the Mississippi is not real pleasure craft friendly. There is a lot of commercial traffic, right. uh, which can make it a little bit less pleasant. You're competing with the large barges for space on the waterway, but also through the locks. Uh, there also are not as many facilities for pleasure craft. So fewer marinas, fewer safe anchorages, much further between fuel stops. Right. So most will take the upper Mississippi to where it's... Um, turns into the, this 10 time route as i mentioned yeah right okay good now who was well how long ago did the first person actually do this great loop you know it's, it's been uh, over a hundred years and there's not great documentation on who was actually the first to do it there have been um, some articles in a book about four young boys who actually did it uh, in the late 1800s it appears Mm -hmm. Uh, the first real well-documented trip that i'm aware of was uh, by the gentleman who founded the matthews boat company and his story is so interesting to me because it's so similar to what loopers do today and it was that he he needed a break from working um was kind of tired of the rat race he loaded up his family on a boat that he had built and headed off and, and followed the route pretty much as we know it today. Right. The exception being uh, the 10 Tom route that I've mentioned didn't open until um, a channel was cut to connect two of the waterways. Mm-hmm. And that was opened, I believe, in the mid 80s. So anybody before the 1980s who did this actually did take the Mississippi River all the way down to New Orleans. I see. OK, so it has a really rich history. That's great to understand. It does. Now, I guess as far as the um, American Great Loop Cruises Association goes, there's been a lot of evolution over the years. Can you tell us about some of the things that have changed with the association? 
Sure. Uh, you know, while the trip hasn't changed, as I said, the route has been the same for hundreds of years. Technology really has had a huge effect on the association itself. So when I first got involved, as I said, about 10 years ago, uh, the, the communications that exist today really, even just 10 years ago, weren't there. So while many people were using the Internet and it was very prevalent, uh, when we took over running the association, it actually you still had to pr print out a membership form and mail a check. <laughs> so obviously, as the Internet has evolved, that's become a much more easy for people to find out about the loop. And I think social media just really took that to another whole level because even – 10 years ago, if you were doing the Great Loop, you might have a group of 10 close friends and family that you might be emailing or, you know, sending kind of a blog to about your whereabouts and what you're doing. Today, you're posting that all over social media. So it's not your 10 closest friends finding out about this. It's your hundreds of acquaintances on social media. So that's caused a lot of interest in the Great Loop. There's also been some, at least here in the U.S., some mainstream media attention to the Loop over the past five or so years that I think has also increased the awareness of it. Prior to that, it got a lot of coverage in boating publications, but that was about it. Uh, we've um, The Great Loop was actually a category on the, the Jeopardy game show a couple of years back, which right. was mm. really interesting to see. Yeah, right. <laughs> So I guess it would be fair to say way back then you wouldn't have got too many inquiries from Australians and New Zealanders who wanted to come over and do the loop. But that's all changed that's very now. very true. Yeah. Absolutely. So talking about that, um, can you tell us a little bit about the diversity of loopers today? Where do they, where do they come from? Who are they? Uh, loopers actually come from all over the world at this point. Uh, the vast majority of our members are still from the U.S. and Canada. Um, but we've got members in, I think it's about 17 other countries besides the U.S. and Canada. So oh. literally from all over the world. Uh -huh. um, loopers still today are primarily retirees because that who that's the demographic that has the time available to do a trip like this mm. but we are seeing a definite growth in the number of families doing it so homeschooling the children or boat schooling the children aboard yep. uh, kind of learning history while they're experiencing the places that it happened and again technology is something that's making that a lot more possible for people so those still working have much more opportunity in today Today's environment to work aboard. So we're seeing more families, more people undertaking this trip while they're still working. And we're also seeing more kind of 20-somethings uh, taking a gap year during college uh -huh. or finishing college and doing a trip like this before they actually start their career path. So it, there's been a lot of growth beyond that kind of standard demographic of retirees. I understand. Right. So Let's look at the loop in the context of it's a incredibly long journey. It's 6,000 miles, right? So if one was to go out tomorrow in their boat and say, right, I'm going to go and take on a 6,000-mile journey, there's lots of things that one needs to consider. So what are some of the things that you think are important considerations for wannabe loopers to be aware of prior to setting out on the loop? most important consideration is to make sure that you have a vessel that will make you happy and comfortable because this is a pleasure trip. So you want to make sure that you're doing this in a vessel that um, is suitable and seaworthy. Mm. 
but uh, there are some parameters on that vessel as well that particularly if you're coming from overseas, you may not realize. Uh, there are some, lots of bridges on the Great Loop, but a few fixed bridges, meaning that they're not draw bridges, they don't open, that you have to be able to get under. And the lowest fixed point on the Great Loop that there's no route choice to get around mm -hmm. is currently charted at 19.7 feet. Right. And it's on the Illinois River, a little bit outside of Chicago. Yep. But whatever boat you choose to use, you have to be able to get under that bridge. Okay. So when I say that, people immediately say, well, can I do it in a sailboat? Absolutely. About 10% of our members are in sailboats, but you do have to take the mast down. Yep. So that's a primary consideration. The other consideration is that, as I said, it's mostly an inland trip, and there are some areas where the channels are not that deep. So we recommend a draft uh, of no more than six feet. A little bit less than that is actually uh, ideal. You'll have an easier time if, if you have a draft of five feet or less. Right. Okay. Now, thinking outside of the box here for a minute with extraordinary requests, I actually got a friend of mine from Belgium contact me yesterday who found out that I was going to do this and he said said to me hey can I do this as well now he's in a wheelchair so mm -hmm. are people in wheelchairs doing the loop actually they are and of course that also presents its own challenges um, there's a gentleman recently who um, is in a wheelchair mm -hmm. and found a boat specific to his needs now he happened to be an engineer so he was developing um, different pieces of, of technology or different machinery that would help him to get his wheelchair on and off the boat. Um, so I can certainly put your friend in touch with him. Um, we also have a family out there traveling who has a daughter with some special medical needs. And uh, while she is mobile, she does spend some time in a wheelchair. So they also have experience with getting that equipment on and off the boat. So yep, it's doable. Wonderful. So it's really open to anybody really. Yes. Okay, great. So we've talked a bit about how the technology's changed over the years. What about the boats themselves that are used for the loop? How have they evolved over the years? I would say they've gotten bigger. And, uh -huh. and I think, at least here in the U.S., there's this perception that the loop is done by extremely big boats. That's really not the case. Um, the average size boat on the Great Loop right now, it, per our member database, is 40 feet. Uh -huh. Um I would say that that has definitely increased over the time I've been doing this. Mm -hmm. And it used to be that the, the recommendation was to do the Great Loop on the smallest boat that you could be comfortable aboard mm. for the time that you would be traveling yep. with whoever you're traveling with. Um, and the theory there being that you can it's, it's a little bit easier perhaps to maneuver a smaller boat in unfamiliar waters. Sure. Um, but since then, I do think people are uh, taking more into account their creature comforts and yep. the things that they might like to bring with them. And that's why I think we started to see the size of the boats tick up a little bit. But again, you know, for something that most people will take a year or more to do, 40 feet is really not an exceptionally huge vessel. Right. Sure. Now, given that, what's the smallest craft on record that actually completed the loop? So well, there are several small crafts. Um, we had somebody do it in a dinghy in the last couple of years. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, we've had people kayak the Great Loop. Mm -hmm. We had a gentleman in his 80s who did the entire route in a 14-foot scary that he built. Um, so when there was wind, he was sailing, but when there wasn't, he was rowing that wow. boat. Wow. Um, no engine power. So it's been done, you know, as long as it's seaworthy, um, 
you can do it. You do have to account for the fact that you'll be in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, sure. So there can be waves. Mm. And in the Great Lakes, there's a huge bodies of water. There can be waves. And some of these smaller, you know, when we're talking about, um, there's been jet skis doing it, but when we're talking about paddling or something a little bit different like that, you can stay much closer to the shoreline. Yep. So I would actually say it's probably a little bit safer, um, you know, in a kayak than it would be in a bigger boat that was not seaworthy, but that you had to go out far into the Gulf to be able to do it. So sure. keep that in mind. Yeah, that makes sense. Now we've mm-hmm. talked about the smallest. What, what's the longest vessel that's ever done the loop? I don't actually know the answer to that question. The longest I have personally seen is 70 feet. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did have a member recently in our members discussion forum mention that they did. And I think they said that they were in a 90 footer. Um, there, there aren't too many restrictions on the length of the boat. Some people think that some of the historic locks might not be able to accommodate a larger vessel, but most of them were built for commercial or military traffic. Right. So there's really no practical restriction on the length of the boat. But mm. of course, as the boats get longer, they tend to get taller and have a higher air draft. And, and you'll probably run into issues with that long before you'd run into issues with the length. Yeah, I understand. Right. Now, as you've already mentioned, the loop itself goes through many different states of the United States and into Canada. So it's also an international component to it, I guess. How do the respective state authorities view the looper community today? that most of the states and, and, you know, as you're crossing the borders really have a lot of respect for loopers. There's a special club flag that members fly. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're identifiable. Um, and, you know, these are a group of people out there having a lot of fun. And in general, they're very respectful boaters. You know, they're, they're cognizant of the fact that they're visiting other countries, that they're visiting other states in the U.S., and they're typically really interested in learning about the places that they're visiting. So I think for the most part, they're very much viewed as welcome guests who are interested in learning, but also are very respectful of the customs and rules in the different places that they're visiting. Right. That makes sense. Now, a lot of my research on your organization has led me down the path of understanding that it's an organization that really is built around community, and part of that community is defined by a concept called harbour host. Now, can you just explain to our audience what this idea of harbour host is all about? Sure, and that's one of the, the programs that I absolutely love that AGLCA is able to organize for our members. Harbour hosts are basically members of the organization who have raised their hands and said, when loopers are coming through my hometown, I'm here to help them with whatever they might need. Mm-hmm. So at the minimum level... You can call them and they'll provide recommendations if you need um, health care while you're in their area, if you need a haircut, if you need a vet, they can recommend those services for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them go far above and beyond that and come and uh, greet you at the local marinas. Uh, some will ask you to join them at their home or at their boat for what we call docktails, a little take on cocktails, right. sometimes for a meal. Often they will uh, take you to a store since you're arriving basically without land transportation. Uh, they'll take you to replenish your supplies. Um, some have been known to, you know, if they have a spare vehicle, we had one who um, owned a restaurant at a marina and had a spare vehicle and they just basically left the keys in their spare truck and, and let members know, come on through, feel free. Here's the code to get into the truck and, and uh, 
go ahead and use it and then just leave it back in the parking lot. So wow. it really is a community. We've got over 300 harbor hosts now around the route. And I, I really encourage our members to reach out and use them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a little bit of a sense in today's world that, you know, you may be bothering somebody or uh, a hesitancy to really kind of reach out on that one-on-one connection type basis. Yep. But these people really want to help. And initially Harbor hosts were mostly people who had finished the route and were wanting to kind of pay it forward. Yep. But more and more, we've got brand new members who are signing up to be a Harbor host because you don't need to know about the route itself. You just need to know about your own little piece of it. Yep. So these newer members are just eager to have access to a current looper. Yep. Um, just to pick their brains. So I encourage anyone doing the loop to reach out to these Harbor hosts and their information is available on our website to, to reach them. Terrific. And um, for everybody that's listening, I will link in the uh, association's website at the end of the podcast. Now, Kim, you mentioned there about the Harbor host. um, So you don't actually have to have completed the loop to become a Harbor host. What's the best way of someone getting in touch with the organization to go through the process. Is there any qualification requirements? There's really not. It's strictly a volunteer effort. Um, it's grown to the point that in many cities, uh, there are several harbor hosts. So, you know, if you're not available or, or someone's reaching out to you and can't reach you, there's usually somebody else that they can get to. Right. So, uh, nope, there's really no requirements other than a willingness to help. Um, and we just ask, there's actually just a checkbox in, in the member's profile, um, that they can sign up for. But we just ask that if for some reason you're deciding you can no longer serve in that capacity, make sure you turn that off, mostly just so you're not getting calls that you can't can't handle at the time. Right. Okay. Now, in addition to the Harbor Host, the uh, association has a number of regular information sessions that are being held, um, which provide certain information for lupus. Can you elaborate a little bit about those information sessions and when the next ones may be coming up? Sure. We do three or four shorter kind of day, day and a half introduction type seminars, different parts of the country, um, three or four, as I said, a year. The next one is actually coming up next week in uh, Ontario, Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, those are a day to a day and a half. They kind of give you an introduction to the, the loop, the route, how to plan for it. And we usually try to bring in some of our gold loopers. And a gold looper is anyone who's completed the whole route. And they share their stories, um, somewhat as inspiration, but also somewhat at, for information and, and to ask some questions, too. Um, we also have two larger events, uh, about four days per year. They're called rendezvous. So we have one in the spring and one in the fall. Mm-hmm. And those bring in uh, typically about 300 people. And it's mm-hmm. four days of seminars, camaraderie. We have uh, group meals as part of it because that just is where so much of the, the kind of the magic happens. It's just by people connecting with one another. Um, but one of the popular parts about those events is our looper crawls because 50 or 60 looper boats are generally in the marina at those facilities. About half the people come by car and half come by boat right and many of those boats in the harbor 
the owners will open them up in the afternoons for others to tour them. Yep. So it's a great social time, mm-hmm. but it's also a great opportunity for people who don't yet have the boat that they plan to use for the Great Loop to experience what those boats are like when someone's actually living aboard and all their stuff is on it. A little bit different from a boat show when they're kind of all prettied up and nobody's gear is is on board. Yep. Uh, but it also, you get to ask the owners uh, questions, you know, what did they like about the boat? What would they perhaps change? Yep. And it's a very low pressure situation because most of the boats are not for sale. So it's a little bit different than a boat show. And a lot of people really find that as a great way to explore different types of loop capable boats. Okay. So talking about boats a little bit further, then if someone's interested to, to do the loop, where do they start looking for a suitable watercraft to do the loop? If you're not going to buy a kayak? <laughs> well, I always recommend to somebody who is buying a boat to look for a buyer's broker. Um, it's, A lot like real estate is in the U.S. and I assume probably in other places, Um, the buyer's broker, their fees are typically paid by the seller. Mm -hmm. So there's really not much for you to lose in most cases by engaging with a buyer's broker. Mm. And they can help you figure out, you know, anything on a a boat is typically a compromise. So they can help you figure out what are the things you absolutely must have in your Great Loop boat, what are the things you'd like to have but you could do without, and what are things that are really not necessary for you. And they can kind of open your eyes to a lot of things you may not have thought about for the boat, including Mm -hmm. how easy it is to get around and handle lines because you're, you're docking that boat frequently and you're tying up at locks frequently so you want to make sure that not only is it comfortable for you on the inside but that depending on your age and your health and and what you're comfortable doing is it easy enough for you to handle the lines in those kinds of situations so um you can find them online of course our website does have a sponsor directory where you can find brokers that specialize in the great loop and and know all about you know the air draft that i mentioned and the water draft and and any beam requirements and things like that terrific so that that information as you say is available on your website yes okay so a wannabe looper has gone out there and they've met a harbor host they've gone to one of your information sessions they've actually gone and purchased their boat is there a typically a good starting point for loopers to start their adventure on the loop? There really isn't any specific starting point. And I, I actually get asked that a lot. But the starting point primarily is just going to depend on where the boat is. So if you live somewhere along or close to the route, that's probably where you're going to start. If you're traveling to purchase a boat like you will be, then most likely you're just going to start in the area that you find that boat. Right. So... Where you start really doesn't matter. Uh, Where you start, though, will likely determine when you start. Because, of course, in the northern portions of the Great Loop, winter is not a time to be there. Most of the boats are pulled out of the water. The facilities are closed down. So if you were to find a boat on Lake Michigan that was your perfect looping boat, you most likely would wait till the summer to start the Great Loop. If you're in Florida, you can start at any time. But if you're planning to do it continuously, most people take about a year and it is seasonal you of course want to be in the northern portions in the summer you would be traveling down the river system in the fall spending the winter in the southern portions florida some will cross to the bahamas Uh, for non-us citizens you can even go to cuba Um, and then heading up the east coast in the spring so that's kind of the pattern if you're doing it continuously that most loopers would follow okay i understand now i'm quite surprised that your association hasn't got out there on the icw and actually put down a uh 
a checkered flag on the waterway somewhere so everybody can cross it. <laughs> we have a lot of people ask us, well, how do you know if we finish it? We, we, um, it it's kind of a, we take your word for it. Um, we don't have a tracker on you or the boat. <laughs> if you tell us you finished it, you know, that's, it, it's a personal goal. So there's really no incentive for somebody to say they finished it if they haven't. Yeah, absolutely. Now we live in a time where the environment is a huge consideration for everybody. And um, because of the loop being spent, the, all of its time being conducted on water, I'm very interested to know how the quality of the waterways that one travels on the loop have either deteriorated or improved over the years. So if we're talking about the quality of the waterways, uh, for the most part, I would say that they have improved if we're talking about the cleanliness. Um, you know, uh, most of all of the loop, you, you can't discharge your black water. Um, gray water uh, is, is, there are some places you can't discharge it, but the U.S. in general and, and always in Canada has really become very conscious of the cleanliness of our waterways. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, you know, first and foremost, and that's being monitored. And I would say over the, you know, the past 20 years, it has certainly improved. If we look at the quality of the waterways in terms of um, the maintenance, so to speak, of the waterways, that is deteriorating, sadly. Right. Um, some of the locks in the U.S. have not been funded to be maintained the way that they should. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen some emergency closures in the past few years, which is, of course, problematic. And there's a big closure coming up for uh, seven locks on the Illinois waterway in 2020, which mm -hmm. is certainly going to put a damper on doing the loop in that particular year. There are also issues uh, in high areas where there's a lot of tides that uh, dredging needs to be done so that we can dig the channels a little bit deeper. And sadly, the funds haven't been sent that way to keep those dredged the way they really should be either. Yep. That also, I think, is improving. I think once anything gets really to a point of disrepair, there's really not much you can do but start to improve it. Yep. So it is improving. Um, but, you know, overall, the waterways are, are easily navigable and um i guess the other big issue with the waterways are invasive species we've seen a migration of asian carp up the river system in the u.s right um and they kind of uh devour all of the food sources that other fish would typically be living on so they're a problem there have been electric barriers put in place in some places to kind of control that migration so there are active efforts to uh, try and alleviate that problem and prevent those Asian carp from reaching the Great Lakes. Right. Now, because the association has so many members on the loop doing the loop, is there anything that's been coordinated through the association to help clean up the waterways in any way? There isn't currently. We, of course, try and make sure we get all the information out on um, how you can get pump outs. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain places which are no discharge zones, which are a little bit different than every place where you can't discharge your sewage, um, no discharge zones. Um, you can't release treated waste either. And some of the treated waste is actually more pure than the water themselves. So that's been a big issue lately um, in the U S but we just try to make sure that everyone's aware of the regulations that are in place because they certainly are enough to keep the waterway clean. Right. Understood. Now, earlier when we were talking about boats, you mentioned that uh, crews must get proficient at, uh, tying up at locks, etc. How many locks are there on the Great Loop Circuit today? 
It's well over 100. There are a few different route choices, particularly as you're going into and through the Great Lakes. Uh, so that makes it hard to put a specific number on it, but you will go through at least 100, uh, all different kinds, uh, some very historic, some very commercial, just lots of really interesting locks if you're the type of person who likes engineering marvels because there are several of them. Right. Terrific. Um now I guess you've already met, well you've already talked about today um how the the loop um has evolved whether it be through the size of boats types of boats the types of people doing the loop what do you envisage the future of the loop to be and in particular I'm thinking about things like electric propulsion on boats and things like that what do you see as the future for for loopers Propulsion-wise, yes, I think electric propulsion is becoming big, as well as solar-powered vessels. And there have been a few out there in the last few years who are doing the loop completely under solar power. And, you know, thankfully, the cost of the equipment to make that possible is coming down. Uh, It's up until recently, and it may still be the case because I haven't priced it recently, but outfitting the boat with the proper solar panels and uh, batteries and all that for the storing the power was actually more costly than the fuel would mm-hmm. be to do mm-hmm. the whole loop. So that was uh, certainly making it prohibitive. Right. Uh, but that is changing. Mm-hmm. And, of course, as some of the older boats start to age out, because most people do buy a previously owned boat for the Great Loop uh, simply as a cost factor. Yep. But as you know, some of those 70s and 80s boats are just reaching the end of their useful lifetime newer boats are more fuel efficient so i think besides the fact that we will start to see more and more relying on alternative energy in general the boats are becoming more efficient as well so i think those are all very good good things that are happening towards the future of the loop okay and are there any boat manufacturers out there today that actually have designed a boat specifically for the loop Actually, yes, there have been a few. Um, A lot of them, because the loop has risen in popularity so much, a lot are marketing their boats specifically um, as loop capable or ideal for the Great Loop. So there really are lots of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Beneteau has a Swift trawler model that they launched, gosh, probably five or six years ago. Mm -hmm. The particular model uh, they, they built for use on the Great Loop. I think it was the 34 foot. Mm-hmm. Um, but they launched it actually from our spring rendezvous and had it complete the whole loop. They did it extremely fast uh, <laughs> because their mission was really to show off the boat more so than to uh, smell the roses, so to speak, along the way. Right. Um, but yes, but if you flip through some of the boating magazines now, you'll see lots of ads that mention that, you know, it's a, a great, great loop boat. Mm. So they are coming on board as far as the design goes that's great to hear now the loop itself is for, for a lot of people it's once in a lifetime journey and because it can take so long to do i guess there's a bit of a hangover process when <laughs> when everybody has finished or crossed their wake and they um they need to go back to their their other life again or they maybe they don't need to go back but they choose to go back to their other life what are some of the examples you can share with us today about um that great loop hangover and how people deal with it yeah i love that you called it the great loop hangover that's a great term for it some of our members call it post loop letdown (laughs) Um, but yes it's a real thing um i had one member in fact who happened to have a home that was along the intracoastal waterway so that's where they started their loop 
and that's where they finished it. And when they, they told me when they reached their dock outside their home again, they tied up the boat and they stayed on the boat for another few days because they just <laughs> couldn't bear for it to be over and to go inside. Go. Um, we're seeing a lot of people just fall in love with a lifestyle and decide to just keep right on going and uh, explore other parts. You know, there are so many route choices on the loop that it's hard to see it all in one mm, trip. So mm. we're seeing more people go around again. Mm-hmm. We actually see a lot of people transition to an RV and, and do some exploring by the roadways after they have finished the loop, uh, just as another adventure and another alternative to boating. Uh, some people have, you know, they, they have family considerations and really can't continue to explore in the way that they had while they were on the great loop. So, um, that's a, a great reason that people become harbor hosts really is to just stay connected to the lifestyle. I'm sure it is. Now out of your members, who has done the loop the most amount of times? Wow. There is one particular boat that I think they are approaching their 30th loop, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And their story is a little bit unique. They have a summer home in Michigan and a winter home in Florida. And it is just about equal distance, regardless of which way they go between those two. So they continue to, you know, to head from Florida to Michigan along the East Coast. And then when it's uh, the fall and they're ready to to head back to Florida, they head down the river system. So every year they complete a loop. And um, like I said, I think they're close to their 30th time, if I'm not mistaken. That is extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. They're and they're (laughs) by far the most, (laughs) the most times. Now, you're talking tonight to a New Zealander who's living in Australia at the moment who's coming over to do the loop. And mm-hmm. I'm sure you've got, as you've already said, there's lots of um, international participation. So compared to 10 years ago, where are we at now with international participation on the loop? And, and how is that community growing? Like I said, we... Um have members from 17 other countries besides the U.S. and Canada. Um, so that is absolutely growing. Uh, Ten years ago, we had very, probably a few from the U.K., but that was about it. But we are seeing more and more New Zealanders, more and more Australians. Um, the vast majority still seem to be from English-speaking countries. And, you know, part of that may be that we could do a better job of figuring out how to translate all the information we have right. available. Um, but it certainly has grown. I don't have a number of how many we had 10 years ago, so I can't really quantify how much it's grown. But uh, we see a few new international members just about every month. Okay, fantastic. Now, I just want to take this opportunity to have a call out to Colin and Dawn Warrington down here in Australia, who are actually our harbour hosts. And Mm -hmm. they've been doing a fantastic job in inspiring and motivating us to get over there and do the loop with all the wonderful information they've been sharing with us. So some feedback for you that your harbour hosts are really doing the job and we love chatting with them and learning more about the loop. Yeah, and they are wonderful. And um, it was such a pleasure getting to know them a little bit when they were doing the loop. And I think they were probably one of the first who stood up when they finished and said, well, I want to be a harbour host, even though I'm not on the route. And... (laughs) Something that never occurred to me, but what a great idea. And as you said, they're over in Australia, um, but doing their harbor host duties uh, just as well as they would if they were right on the route because they're helping others. And that's what it's all about. It sure is building that community spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, we're coming to the end of the podcast, but I just before I let you go, Kim, I wanted to ask you 
for all the people that are out there that are sitting there listening to this podcast today and they've been inspired to say, hey, this is something that I want to have a closer look at. Um, maybe I could end up doing this particular loop. What would your five top tips be for all wannabe loopers out there listening to this podcast? Definitely the number one tip is to make it your own. Um, it's pretty typical, like I said, to do it in about a year. And for non-U.S. citizens, that may remain kind of typical simply because of immigration um, requirements. But, you know, we do have another couple I just visited with here in Charleston on their boat that w- from Australia um, that is just doing it in very small pieces and going back and forth. Um, And so when I say make it your own, don't let anybody tell you that you have to have a certain type of boat or do it in a certain time frame or stop at specific places. Mm. It's all about doing it in a way that makes you happy. So that's certainly the biggest tip. Um, Second, we always tell people, don't have a schedule. You can have kind of a plan laid out in a time frame, but schedules are what kind of can get people into trouble. Um, Schedules are what cause people to leave a safe harbor, perhaps on a weather day where they might have been better off staying put. Um, Having a schedule can cause you to miss things along the route. You know, Mm -hmm. if you're um, insistent on being at point B in three days and you're at point A and there's something fabulous going on in the next couple days, some kind of festival, um, having that schedule could cause you to miss out on something like that. Um, I would say make sure you plan and understand what you're about to undertake, but don't over plan. We have some people who, uh, you know, plan and plan and plan and wait for the perfect moment and it just never comes and passes them by. Mm -hmm. Um, Fourth one, attend a rendezvous, lots of information, lots of camaraderie. Um, And fifth one, just make sure that you're comfortable with your boat and how she handles. Um, We certainly don't want you to buy a boat for the Great Loop and start out the very next day. Make sure you get whatever training you need and whatever experience you need. Um, And then just go and have a great time. Kim Russo from the American Great Loop Cruiser Association. It's been fantastic talking to you today and understanding more about the Great Loop. I actually want to get on a plane tomorrow and come over and start my own loop. That's how excited (laughs) I am. But it's not I mean, too, not too far switch, away. Switch boats for a while. I can come over to Australia and, and do some boating there while you're while you're here. Well, that's a great idea as well. We can talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Okay, Kim, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again sometime in the future. Great. Look forward to meeting you when you get here. That was Kim Russo, the director of the America's Great Loop Cruises Association. I'm Mark Philpot from the Global Travel Channel. Be sure to check out our other podcasts on our website at www.globaltravelchannel.com. Until next time, it's goodbye for now.